If you turn your Bibles or your bulletin to John 8, I'm going to read 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's the word of the Lord. Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, I just want to thank everybody who showed up to pull all of this together for us so that we could worship here this morning. It looks it looked kind of good. It looks sort of clean. And uh, it's... Yeah. We're doing some decluttering around here. Um, and especially Phelps, who runs our sound. Thank you, Phelps. Um, oh, shucks. You did a lot, okay? Yeah. Um, I, I did the heavy lifting. They looked at me to be the muscle man in the thing, the operation. Um, but Phelps, he, he set up, I mean, and the guys, deacons came over, some other guys came over. Um, Cindy Pearson came over yesterday to help. Um, Aaron uh, as well. And we just appreciate you guys getting all this ready to go um, for today. Um, so we're going we're gonna to continue to be like this for a little bit. We don't know how much longer. Um, and uh, it won't disrupt what we're doing. Amen? Um, as we continue our sermon series in the book of John... Jesus has quickly become a guy the religious leaders want to pick on and trap to get him out of the public eye and adoration. That is probably why this narrative that you have here before you is sandwiched here by whoever put the latter, whoever put it in the latter editions of the Gospel of John. They put it there possibly to flow with the attacks and criticisms that the Pharisees and scribes were seeking to use to bring Jesus down. However, it is a known fact from biblical scholars that this account that that we have here did not show up in the earliest manuscripts of John. And in some editions of the Bible, this account is put in Luke somewhere after chapter 22. With all that said, there is little argument that this is a true gospel account. But what is argued and unknown is whether it should be here in John as if John wrote it. Well, I have decided that it will be here in our sermon series on John. 
It does curiously flow right on in with what we saw last week about Jesus after he heals a crippled man on the Sabbath against legal judgments of the chief religious leaders. And so these leaders, the Bible tells us in verse 6 of chapter 8, try to trap Jesus. They knew in bringing this woman caught in adultery to Jesus and asking if she should be stoned would press Jesus into a corner. The law of the Romans forbade Jews from doing their own capital punishment without Roman court intervention, while on the other hand, the law of Moses, the moral and civil law of the Jews, declared that a man and woman caught in adultery must be put to death. Caught between the misuse of the law by the Pharisees and scribes seeking to entrap him, Jesus reveals God's right uses of the law. And that is good news for us. We are all in some way or another shackled and condemned or beat down or kept away from the Lord and the blessings of his grace and love because of the misuse of the Bible, of the commandments, not only by others, but we have even done it to ourselves. The Ten Commandments and the directives and directions and corrections and holy disciplines we have in this Bible in the wrong hands and in the wrong hearts without Jesus being central to it can be and has been used as one of the most abusive religious hate tools you and I have or could ever know. But so that we may believe and trust God and the scripture, Jesus uses God's law like God uses God's law. And he becomes the final word to break the sticks and the stones that would seek to hurt and crush and condemn and guilt us, me and you, wrongly. Jesus is, here are your three points, God's civil lawyer, God's law teacher, and God's living law of love. Civil lawyer, law teacher, and living law of love. It is so easy to forget when we read about Jesus in his humanity that he was with God and was God, even when the law was given to and written down by Moses. In fact, when he writes in the dirt in this scripture in in, in verse 6, it should remind us that, that he was the author of the law that Moses wrote down in the Bible. He came to be for us, however, God's civil lawyer, to keep us, to keep rather the majority moral and the law civil. Just so you know, the Ten Commandments given to God by Moses is often referred to as God's moral law, which means that these commandments, even if a person had never read the Bible before, because of how God made all people in his image and likeness show up somehow in the vast majority of the world's cultures and people's, people groups, um, like we see in the Ten Commandments, maybe not all on the same level or the same level of execution, but laws about murder and stealing and property ownership and being a true witness in trials and contracts, and yes, adultery, laws and morals about intimate and contractual lifelong relationships show up everywhere. 
And Jesus in this narrative is, as well as his place, as his place in God's creative order, is God's civil lawyer who keeps the majority of the world moral. But out of that moral law comes the civil laws, right? To exercise and execute and enforce the moral law within and for society. And so that we can have civilization and order in our communities. In the Jewish world, God's civil law on adultery read this way. From Deuteronomy uh, 22nd chapter from the Old Testament, verse 22 says this. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lays with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin, someone engaged, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. Delightful, right? Understand clearly. This is hard to hear. That Jesus, being God in the flesh, wrote and agreed with this civil law. He was not opposed to it. In fact, he, Jesus, believed that this law was good for Jewish society and rightly reflected the morality that God intended for all humanity to have and to have their cultures marked, run, and enforced by it. You know what? You and I would be madmen and mad women, crazed, anarchy, unprotected, even flesh eating, evil in a world without restraint and common grace offered by God's moral and civil laws buried deep within our hearts. If we didn't have that, we would go crazy. In fact, consider, I mean, think about it. If a hurricane hits, What happens? People start going shopping without their wallets, with shopping carts, with bags, the back seats of their cars, whatever. People go shopping when electricity goes out, don't they? They get the five-finger discount on everything because the law ain't there. The alarm systems are gone. Police are spread throughout the city. In fact, Considering women, looking back at this scripture in particular, this civil law, in fact, considering women back then could not own property or divorce their husbands and only be divorced, the law was designed to protect the rights and lack of rights of women in that culture, not to exploit them like they were doing to this woman. If not for this civil law, women and children they have would have little or no protections and it would be one huge speed dating for hating revolution of degradation going on with lots of homeless, helpless baby mamas with plenty of baby daddy dramas going on if it weren't for this civil law. So back to our story. This crowd is bringing this woman to have Jesus give his rulings and thoughts according to the laws of Israel that he wrote. And Jesus, being God's civil lawyer, uses the law exactly how it should be used in the face of misuse by this crowd. 
They are a raging mob with immoral reasons for getting this woman stoned and who also, by doing so, violate the other law that they are under in Roman rule. Jesus, seeing all, knows that God's moral law and civil law was for the good of people and not to murder or to test God or to be mean tyrants. As a matter of fact, it was designed to do the opposite by asking them in verse 7 that the one without sin cast the first stone. Jesus is demanding moral and civil justice from the hearts of those people. He is asking them with the stones in their hands to figure out morally and even civilly by law if they are right. Much less if this woman is wrong. Whether they're truly bearing false witness, in other words, whether they have motives outside of justice and healing and health for the community and glory of God, do they have the God-required evidence and proof? I mean, according to God's law for moral and civil right, the man is also to be stoned for adultery, and they only bring the woman. Jesus calls them to the very civil moral law that they seek to pervert for their uncivil and immoral reasons. What Jesus reveals to us, the son of man and the savior of humankind, is that our politics, our laws, our government, our leaders are good for keeping the majority moral out of fear of penalty and for for keeping the laws in this world civil. But without Jesus, we can take those same God-given morals and desires for civility and misuse them. And Jesus, he raises the ante because get this, he is teaching you and me as them back then that in our execution and judgments of morals and civil law, the heart and the motive behind and in it do matter. That you can't hide behind a law. You can't hide behind the execution of the law. You can't hide behind your judgment. Your heart and your motive in executing or doing something or judging something, it matters to Jesus. That if we were acting out and enforcing and calling for our moral right and civil rights just for political or financial or social advantage, it is an ungodly use of morality in civil law. So much of our morals and moral civil law and code and the way we want to see it is enforced and driven wrongly by prejudice or self-securing motives for the America we want to see and not necessarily, necessarily what God has intended. And because this moral and civil thing is more than skin deep, it is not only hard to keep ourselves in moral check, it is near impossible. Because our personal And screwed up stuff will make us throw sticks and stones with all that we personally and oftentimes faultily disagree with. And we evangelicals, I'm saying we, can ironically be the worst at it. I'm ashamed to say we are always ganging together 
Man, just turn on Facebook. Just turn on some of the blogs that the evangelicals put out. We put out ganging together and attacking certain issues and people in our world. And I am all for, and we should all be for, be united for a moral America. Families and all of that kind of stuff and all push for law-abiding and civil society. Everybody wants that. Guess what? Even the people in the hood want gun control. But our attempts at a moral life and world will fade, fail, and fly in the face of God if we are not kept in check by the humility of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that we will believe that, guess what? We can and we do have wrong motives. A belief that will hopefully hopefully make us put down our sticks and stones and pick up our prayer life and Bibles and accountability and fellowship and Lord's Supper and and asking for help and and, and being careful with how we judge and and how we execute things and how we treat people and how we want to make the law work. And Jesus was sent into our trying to figure this moral and civil world stuff out, to teach us, show us something deeper in it and through it. He came to be God's law teacher. And in doing so, in this second use of the law, show us we are sinners who need his saving grace. So Jesus only has three sentences in the whole narrative. In verse 7, he says this. As they continue to ask him, they would leave the man alone. They want to trap him, right? He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Then later in verse 10 and 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In telling this woman, go and sin no more, he declares what? That she's a sinner. That she was wrong and was condemned to die for and in that sin. But he also calls the crowd out as sinners who came all wrong, wrong motives and wrong justice. And they see their sin in it and respond by laying down their stones because Jesus in his powerful words and use of the law cut them to the heart and called them as those who are breaking covenant with God, who have missed, missed the mark, who are guilty of breaking God's law, but not only that, acting contrary to his holy character. Understand that to do and be anything, or not being, or failing to do everything other than what gives glory to God and reflects the very character of God as written and revealed in his Bible and through his Son, is to sin and to be a sinner. And truth of the matter is, without the Word of God in the Bible, along with the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit showing us and confronting our heart, confronting our hearts on deepest levels, we would not know what sin is and when we are sinning. Without the written word of God and word of God saying, this is a sin, this is wrong, or Jesus becoming flesh, we, we would not know how holy God is and how God is holy. Without the Ten Commandments and Jesus, the ultimate guide for these commandments and their right execution showing us, we would not see how far we are from holy God. 
and, and how impossible it is in and of ourselves to get back and be reconciled to him. By saying he without sin be first to throw the stone, Jesus saying in order to be morally perfect, get this now, in order to be morally perfect and right enough to be God's execution of judgment over this woman, you must be perfect in your own life, right? Without sin. And likewise, the only way this woman could be pardoned is if God himself and Jesus does not condemn her. In other words, Jesus shows us that we must have the grace of God at work in our lives in order to be right before God and all we are and all we do. The people, the people trying to stone this woman could not. I mean, when you look at the law of Moses, sure, right? If she's an adulterer and, and he's a man too, and they could be stoned back in the day and that would have been the thing to do. But, but the people trying to stone this woman could not do it. Why? Because they were doing it based on their right to judge her, based on their righteousness. And Jesus shows them that that falls too short to stand before and for God like they were. Now, if they were living and addressing her situation as those who themselves knew God's unmerited, unearned, we are stink sinners and he loved us anyway kind of heart, then they may have possibly had the right heart and motive and mercy to deal with this moral problem in a godly manner. But they showed. They didn't know the grace of God. They weren't acting out of the grace and moral of God because they were not living and acting in or knowing the grace of God. They could not be accepted or acceptable by God in anything, much less carrying out God's justice and truth justly and truthfully. But for this woman, my Lord, for this woman, Jesus literally saves her from the death of her sin. A death she deserves according to the law of Moses. Now the trial was all messed up, yes. But it was his presence and powerful place of Savior in her life to stand between her sin and God's law, who stands between her, the sinner, and her condemning accusers, who stands between her and her own condemning view of herself. Jesus saves her life and gives her a new life, totally based on his grace and undeserved, unearned, merciful pardon. Like this woman this crowd. We are left condemned and powerless to be changed and to please God and to be God's people without his grace and unmerited, freely given, paid for by Jesus, forgiveness and acceptance. We, you and I, will only be trapped like this woman not able to live right 
but like the crowd too, not able to do right without his grace. We will only be condemned by morals and rules and holding people accountable and judging ourselves by God's commandments and rules and directions and descriptions of holiness. Without the saving grace of Jesus Christ affecting and infecting our lives, you and I can only be the kind of people who go around condemning others. And on the other hand, right? I didn't leave y'all out, the other group. Some of us are mercy and justice freaks. We want to help the woman caught in adultery. We want to stand and be stoned for her because it's the right thing to do. We want to be the merciful martyr for this poor woman. Right? We, we that kind of people. We want to sign up with Jan Bossick and help the women at the strip club. Many of us want to help the bad kid down the street or adopt the abandoned kid. And yet you and I will fail to be as merciful and as empowering for righteousness without Jesus' grace at work in our hearts. Even you grace-centered people, without grace really at work in your heart, you cannot be gracious. Understand this. You have to believe that you are a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus to truly help and hold accountable a person who needs to be saved by the grace of Jesus for their sin. You can't be a, I'm all right. Well, I'm just kind of slanted a little bit. No, you got to be, I'm a sinner. I deserve death. I deserve separation from God. And because I know that to be true, I see the same thing in your life, and I offer you the same thing that I needed to save me to you. Some of us like grace so much, and that is good. But it's impossible for some some of us to call sin, sin. We don't even like that word. Because it's condemning, right, in and of itself. And what people, we, we're afraid to call what people are doing is sinful. We rightfully use words like broken or blind. I use a lot too. But folks, me and you, apart from Christ, we sinners. I didn't make that up. Jesus, according to him, the one who wrote the book. That people, we are not right with God. That people without Christ are enemies of good. Hear this now. They are enemies of good and goodness. When you think about the eschatology of things, and things moving to the perfection and the good and the goodness, that only comes ultimately through what Christ does. It doesn't come through moral people. It comes when the power of sin is broken. They are enemies of good and goodness. And when we sin, we act out the same role. You know why we can't accept to call things sin or sinful or wrong? Everything is gray. Big surprise. Because you and I, when we are like that, don't know grace really. Like Jesus is not powerful or gracious enough for them to be that bad. 
or for them to know they and what they are doing are that bad. Jesus just isn't powerful enough to deal with that. So we have to kind of grade on a curve, right? We kind of have to not make it sin. It's just, you know, a little off. People just off. You know what's wrong? We, the so-called loving, uncondemning, cool, we won't confront you or each other Christians, ironically, and I'm guilty. I'm one of them. You know what we live with? We live in fear of the law more than faith in Jesus' offer of grace in the face of the law. Isn't that ironic? When we just, you know, nothing's really a sin and everybody's a little wrong and a right and it's, you know, just gray area and we laugh and discount things we do or other folk do or our brothers and sisters do in Christ. We're afraid. You know why? You have a history of condemnation by the law yourself. You were the one who did wrong and somebody misused the law on you. And you know, you need freedom from that. Freedom to real grace. That Jesus comes and he kind of undoes the misuse of the law in your life so it can be used properly for you. But not a double improper use where since you were condemned and misused and all that, that now you think everything has to go or else you're condemned. Why do we live in fear of the law? Lack of faith in Jesus' grace. Hear this, Jesus actually uses, uses, believe it, believe this now. Jesus actually uses our confrontations against sin and in severe at times interaction with how sin has offended God to take down our defenses against God and actually lead us to hunger for the righteousness in life that only he, Jesus, can give. Unless we know how heavy and dangerous sin is and in the light of that recognize how gracious God has to be and therefore was on a cross, we will misuse the law and be misused by the law. You see, Jesus teaches us the proper use of the law most effectively with a show and tell. With his own body. When he got up on that cross, he showed us something. He taught us. How seriously God takes sin and how holy God is and how unholy we have been. But on that cross, he shows us what we need and what it will take to be right. With the power available to be declared righteous, not our works, but God's grace in Jesus taking our condemnation and sin away. And when that happens... Jesus introduces to us us to a new way of living. Living in the law of love. Freeing us. Sometimes I can't imagine it being true. Freeing me and you to live for the, for the love of God and freeing us to live only be, because of the love of God. We see the clearest indication of this in Jesus' words to this woman. Once again, verse 10. 
Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. Hear this now. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus saying, Follow the law. Don't sin anymore. Don't commit adultery anymore. Live pure. Obey. Live free from sin's power, but more than that, live free from the condemnation of the law and live in the commendation of the law. Which is this, to live for the love of God, not the fear of being rejected or stoned or stuck being unacceptable. You see, what the people who sought to stone her and she herself failed to recognize was that the commandments and and description of holiness for God's people were so that they could have a holy and loving relationship with him and each other. And so God was seeking to move anything out of the way that would seek to disturb their covenant people loved by God and loving each other groove, right? The commandments, the law were a way to show love and thanks to God. Because as we've learned, it is impossible to live good enough by trying to prove yourself worthy to be his. The commandments are not a proving ground. You will fail if you think it's a proving ground. The commandments and laws of God are a way to express thanks and love and glory to the God who saved your soul. You know, it's hard to buy my dad a gift. Some of you may experience that with people you love and respect. Because how could I repay or express properly what he did for me as my father? And he already has so much. He's a successful tour guide, businessman, has more money and resources, got better credit than me. Heck, most of the time he's my security blanket financially. I'm looking forward to him giving gifts for the kids. Daddy, my shoe's broken. Just wait, granddaddy going to send something. <laughs> Is it Christmas time? How many toys are we getting? We'll get two because granddaddy will get more. <laughs> granddaddy has the Target trip. I'm coming up to Charlotte, taking all the kids to Target, get what they want. And I'm like, hey, kid, get the grill. Get the grill. <laughs> <clears throat> granddaddy, I want a grill. <laughs> You know, it would just be good to know what would make my dad happy. It is so impossible. Give him a little trinket, right? See, there is no proving or buying or earning that relationship. It's love. It's love when you have nothing to prove and you can't prove or pay for anything. It's love when God is so holy that there has to be a grace relationship for him to accept what he gives you, what you give him. It's love. You can't prove nothing to God. You can't be moral holy enough. God has told his people, this is how to love me and gift me. Obey me. Be holy. Lay down your condemning stones and go and sin no more. See and seek my forgiveness in Jesus and then go and sin no more and be holy for your God is holy. 
Jesus knew this woman was probably going to sin again. But he is freeing her to not have to be in this lifestyle, in this cycle of sin and condemnation and sin and stones and sin and stones and being found out. She's no longer has to find in no love and security by sinning because she's been forgiven and loved by God and Jesus. See, we can only be free to live for the love of God because of the love of God. See, the Bible tells us that we love him because what? He first loved us. The crowd obeyed Jesus because he first, out of love, get this, called them to the wrongful conditions of their heart and accusations, and then he first loved this woman by sending away her condemners and then saying, go and send them more, forgiving her sin and calling her back into the covenant community. She was God's now because Jesus said so and made it so and loved her so. And it was only those words of love, I don't condemn you. That I, God, forgive you. I, God, say you can be mine and live for me as mine. That I, God, love you. The Bible says this earlier in in John that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life eternal. And that he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send Jesus to introduce a new set of laws but to point to the good law and drive us there, but not in our own effort, but in what he would do to secure us so that we could walk in love, not to condemn us, but that the world might be saved through him. This woman in the crowd deserved death that day, and God just pardoned them. I mean, get this. God pardoned a home-wrecking, adulterous with your husband, trying to be you and better you, deaf to the moral fabric of society, but at the same time exploited, mistreated, mishandled, and overlooked sinner. And then on the other side, he allowed a murderous, self-righteous, religious cult acting, their stuff don't stink, mobs, sick the dogs and the hoses on you, prejudice and unjust against women and hate for the God crowd, go without being stoned or killed themselves, giving them and leading them in the grace, in the grace to lay down their stones and not sin any further. Welcome to the love of God in Jesus. He pardons that kind of stuff in those kinds of people. People you and I love to hate. Jesus lived to love. You and I will never get it right enough. You and I will never get God right enough or well enough. I know. You and I will dare and dodge sinful condemnation all our lives. People will throw stones. We'll be ducking and diving, right? Some of us will fail to trust God in an area of our lives, possibly forever, living with a closed and locked closet of secrets out of fear that God will hate us and condemn us if he finds out like he doesn't know. And if people find out, ooh, people find out, it'll be worse. God and Jesus takes the law and he disarms it from its condemning power. 
Jesus took the law's con- condemnation for the sins we truly did and will commit, and he nailed them on the cross. Instead of you and me suffering in the shame and separation from God's blessing, Jesus was. He was condemned. He was stoned. He was called a sinner. Why? Why? You don't deserve it. Why? You can't earn it. Why? He knew you were going to sin again and again. Why? Because he loved us. That's all I got. Because he loved us. Because of a loving God who still upholds justice in one hand and mercy on the other. And in the cross, they come together perfectly in his love born right there for you and me. We always want a reason. We always want to make the woman not that bad. She was bad. He told her to go and sin no more as if she'd been sinning. He told the crowd, put down your stones. I'm going to give you a chance. Why? There's got to be a reason, man. I look in my scripture. I'm trying to find a moral reason for Jesus to have let those folk go. You know, I think we do this in our lives. We assign moral weight to people and put them in the category of holy apart from Christ And we do that with the Bible stories. There's got to be some reason that God chose Noah. There has to be some reason, something Moses had in themselves for him to choose Moses. Abraham, he must have, you know, been a prayer warrior or or went to all the community groups or something. Why did he choose Abraham? Why did he choose Peter? Why did he choose Paul? We're always looking for some reason why. Because he loves us. And he's gracious. That's why. It's the law of love. And it will not be broken by the Lord. It's his law to keep. The law of love is his law to keep. And ours to benefit from. You and I can drop and no longer live in fear of the world's sticks and stones because the perfect civil lawyer, law teacher, law of love, Jesus the word become flesh, casts all of that to the ground by taking it all to the cross. 